We are in the middle of our Lenten message series, appropriately titled Lent. We went deep on that one. Uh, Lent, we're finding out, is first marked by lamenting, right? In our last message, we discussed the fact that everybody cries, right? We all cry. To cry is very human. But Christians, we lament. We don't just cry, but we cry with a purpose. We, we, we cry with a goal, an end product that we, that we are going to see at the end of our crying. Um, Christians lament because we know that God is loving, God is good, um, and will deliver on his promises. And in the midst of pain and suffering that this world has, we know the tomb is empty and that Jesus is alive. And so we're going to celebrate that on Easter Sunday. And again, these next couple weeks, we're going to be building toward that, moving toward that anticipation of that celebration. Now, what we are also learning, if we're done, if it's done in an honest biblical fashion, lamenting will lead to a second step. And this is kind of the point of, of a, kind of a three-step message series, lamenting, repenting, and then anticipating. And if we lament properly, and again, this is a kind of a big deal, and I'm going to look at this this morning, because if, if we don't lament properly, we won't end up at repentance. I'll just tell you that right now. We will choose not to repent. We will know what we did wrong. We'll know the sin. We'll know the story, but we'll choose not to do anything about it. So how do we make that? How do we make that jump? We're going to be looking at that um, this morning. And so, so to start off this morning, I want to uh, lament. It's a lament for the church. And when I say church, I mean the big C church. I mean the church, worldwide church, not this church in particular. Um, even as I, as I say this, as I, as I went through this message, and, and this message, I'll just tell you, just kind of give you a clue right out of, out of the gate, it's, it's, it's a corporate lament, right? Um, we know how to personally lament, but how do we as a corporate body, as a collective, how do, how do we repent? Um, so we're going to be looking at that um, this morning. So in this passage from Luke chapter 15, it's kind of a, it, it's a lament <clears throat> But again, it's for the big church, and, and, and you all, I've been wrestling with this all week, now you get to wrestle with it. So, there you go. Um, Luke 15, verse 1 says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but this is the dream of every pastor, right? We go to seminary, and we dream of that day when the church doors open, and, and, and sinners, and the brokenness, and, and the dregs of sight, they come pouring in because they know that they're going to receive life, they're going to receive a message of hope. And then we end up in, in our churches and it doesn't, sometimes, sometimes, but sometimes not. It's, it's just kind of a, a, a grab bag of different things. Because um, what happens, again, I believe that most pastors, most church boards, most church goers, they would love to see this until it happened. And then at, that, at some point, when that happens, when sinners, if it ever happened, if they suddenly just started crowding in because they, they knew that they were going to hear words of life and they were going to be loved no matter what a mess that they were, they, were knew, they knew that this was that place where they would, where they would receive that kind of, kind of love and acceptance. Um, good people get nervous when those type people start showing up because they're not cleaned up. They use foul language. They don't dress appropriately. They don't talk appropriately. And they make everybody just nervous in church. Right? Do you, do you, everyone, I, I don't need to drill this. I think everybody understands what I'm talking about here. In many churches, there's always just a small, loud handful of, and they hear this well, good-hearted people, people who desperately want to please God. 
They, they really do. I do not ever believe that some people in some churches are out to destroy other people. They just maybe are misdirected just a little bit, right? Just, just a little bit. Um, they're either trying to outprotect or they're, they're out to protect God's image. That, that's like they have taken upon themselves, I will protect the image of God and I will protect the image of this church so they keep sinful people out. I've told you this before, I interviewed at a position once in California and I asked them, what would you feel if you saw, if we were so successful that you started seeing people from the bar on Saturday night attending church on Sunday morning and the next week they still hit the bar, but they still came back to church on Sunday morning. How would you feel? I said, we wouldn't want them in our church. And I, I, I hope my eyes didn't get too big, but I, well, well why? I said, well, then we wouldn't be able to be a, a city on a hill, a light. We'd be dirty. It's like, I didn't say anything. I was like, we need to examine that passage just a little bit more closely because I don't think that's what it's saying. But this is what this church board thought, and I, and I ran from that place. Um, so we're either out to protect God's image by keeping sinful people out, or we try to out-God God, right? We out-God God. We, we, we create so many rules that even God might not make the cut, right? Because if we make a whole bunch of rules, we, we know who's in and who's out, Right? We know who's in and who's out. Right, Long list of rules that make it very, very, very clear which are the sinful people and which aren't. But both of these things limit access to God. We know this. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Right? So when he welcomes sinners, he's not protecting God's image, right? Jesus, what are you doing? Why did you let them in? They're supposed to stay on the outside. Right? And then, on top of it, it even gets worse. He's clearly a sinner because he broke one of our rules. He's eating with them, and that was one of the rules. You can't eat with a Gentile if you're a pure Jewish person. You just can't do that. And so they, in their head, well, Jesus must be a sinner because he broke one of our rules. And so we do this. And so I just kind of got to ask the question for all of us this morning, what happened to the Pharisees? What happened to the teachers of the law? These people weren't evil people. They were not out to hurt anybody. They loved God intensely, and they wanted everybody to love God as intensely as they did. And with, with all their rules and with all their who's allowed in, who's allowed out, who's out, that's the way they would control the situation, make sure that everybody... So again, what happened to them? They were striving to be the holiest of all holy people. And now we look back 2,000 years later and think, wow, we sure, sure hate to be one of them. I think it all started with confusion about the word holiness. In their minds, holiness was about escape and separation, right? Don't touch anything unclean. Keep yourself completely separated from it, including unclean people. Don't even be in their house. Certainly don't eat with them. Holiness is actually about incarnation and the redemption of the world, not escape and separation from the world. This is what Christ did. Right? He became human. He became flesh, incarnate, in order to redeem the world. And this faulty doctrine, this faulty theology led to inevitable consequences, spiritual and practical consequences. What Timothy Keller called the trap in a book he wrote called King Jesus. And in the trap, it's basically this. He compared the world religions and their place of birth. And I think I shared a little bit of this with you a couple of weeks, about a year or two ago. But there's something strangely different about Christianity when you compare all the religions of the world. Islam started in Saudi Arabia, largely with the exception of a couple different places, maybe Indonesia. 
Islam is still centered in the Middle East very, very firmly. Buddhism started in the East and has pretty much stayed in the East. Hinduism, founded in India, still in India. Christianity, on the other hand, radically different. Radically different with Christianity. First of all, it spread throughout the Mediterranean world, then it spread to Europe, then to North America, and now to South America and Africa. But as the center of gravity of Christianity moved from place to place, from the Mediterranean world to, to Europe, then across the Atlantic to North America, and now it's spreading to South America and Africa. As this happened, as the center of gravity moved around the globe, something strange and very discouraging happened. The message of Jesus burned through fresh communities. In each one of these places, there was so much hurt and there was so much sorrow that it was accepted with open arms. Salvation, boy, the whole city, the whole, everybody got on board. Everybody went to church. But then after a while, something happened. Places like the U.S. and Europe, they settled into, we settled into kind of a maintenance mode. In the 20th century, listen to this. North American Christianity barely kept up with population growth. In South American Africa, Christianity grew at 10 times the population growth. Again, you travel the world and you go to Europe and you see empty cathedrals. And you go to North America and you're beginning to see empty churches. But when you go to South America and Africa, you see people hanging out the windows because this is all so amazing and fresh and new. We send missionaries back to Europe now. <laughs> supposed to go the other way around. See, this, this, is, this is the trap. The message of the cross, the message is about giving up power. Jesus emptying himself of what it meant to be God. The message of the cross is about pouring out resources. Right? God gave his one and only son. The message of the cross is about serving Jesus leads by humbly serving, not by gathering power. And strangely enough, all of this giving and pouring out and serving, it leads to the good life. And again, the rest of the world will look at us and go, no, no, that's how you go to the bad life. If you give everything away, you're supposed to hoard. You're supposed to collect. You're supposed to, you know, giving everything away, you're going to end up penniless. But strangely enough, those of you who have tried it, when you pour out, when you give, when you serve... Paradoxically, it, it's, it's the weirdest thing. Joy comes in. It's just, it's just joy. It's the good life, right? The life of Jesus brings prosperity. Those who learn the biblical principles, now understand what I just said, the biblical principles, do good, treat your neighbor well, don't lie, don't cheat, give your employees raises when they deserve, you know, blah, 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 right? Do all this, these biblical principles, so the people learn the biblical principles. They learn to function in harmony with the rest of creation. Everything is good. Their life improves, right? Their relationships get healed because they're no longer so abusive in their relationships. They no longer have these horrible habits that are going through the family's money, like burning through it, right? They're now spending time and energy on their family, and, and the problems are kind of starting to go away, and they're starting to lead the good life. Christianity works. It, it just does. It, it works, but what happens, this is what happens. The next generation, they do all these things. They follow the principles, but they ignore, they forgot about, they never addressed the relationship that created all of the opportunities. 
It's just, well, if I apply this principle to my life, it's like a self-help book, right? The Bible just becomes a self-help book. I'll just do these things, and supposedly, you know, these Christians tell me everything will come up smelling like roses. Even my life stinks. It'll smell like roses. See, they do the same things. They do the principles, but not out of a love for God. Just because of culture and practicality, and it, it, it just works. So you just kind of keep going to church. But the radical message of sin and grace gets lost in translation from one generation to the next. The next generation didn't experience the relationship. They never experienced They just experienced principles. And if they leaned into those principles, things should be all right. But something didn't connect. Something got lost in translation. We try to emulate the lifestyle without understanding the relationship. And Christianity transmutes into a nice, safe religion. It becomes a place where respectable people come to try to be good or to be seen as good. The radical life that follows Jesus builds a safe, happy, and spiritually comatose body of Christ in the subsequent generations. And then we have the migration. The Jesus lifestyle can build wealth and it can build power. It can. We recognize this. The problem is with those who inherit it, they tend to manage it rather than give it away. Let me say that again. One generation gives it away. They experience the joy of salvation, of the salvation of the other person. And even in the giving away, they experience a certain salvation in their own life. And the next generation, it kind of lands in their lap. And it's something to be managed rather than continued to give away, right? I didn't earn this. I, I can't be the one to give it away. I got to hoard it. The center of Christianity always moves away from power and wealth. Even on the local level, like I just told you the story of Tim Keller's The Trap, and it's the movement of Christianity around the globe from places of hurt and pain and sorrow. Christianity comes in. Life gets better, and then they forget about how it came about, how it first came about. So it moves away from power and wealth, always seeks out new places that are thirsty for that message. And again, even on the, on the local level, right, different parts of a city kind of mirror different parts of our globe. We go into one place, and we kind of clean it up, and and we leave another place. This church did something amazing quite a few years back, 1995, 96. They did something truly amazing, something brilliant, something that worked for the situation. You left old Richland and you came out here, built a beautiful facility. Nothing wrong with that. That was just smart. And generation after generation that follows you is going to look back and say, thank you. Thank you that we got a roof. We got a place. Thank you. Thank you so much. Seriously. But all I want to call our attention to this morning is did we inadvertently, accidentally take our heart out of the city when we left, when we took the building out of the city and when we came out here? And I, again, I'm new here. I struggled with this this week, and now you all got to struggle with it. You all need to ask yourselves are, did we come out here and did we take the heart of the city with us? And how can we get our heart back into that city? Again, I've, 
great move finding this place. You, this has just been a boon. But again, there are, there are unintended consequences. And again, did, did we, and again, this is the, we all need to wrestle with this. Jesus says this, my kingdom migrates away from those who seek power and money and towards those who seek to give it away. <clears throat> the Nazarene church, that is the history of the Nazarene church, if you're not aware of it. We started as a denomination to help the poor and the broken. That was the Nazarene church. We kind of became a church because we had been Methodists and they had kind of gone through a, a series, a kind of an evolution. They started out kind of like the Nazarene churches in the trenches helping the poor, but then they became a respectable church. They became so respectable that they had to start a new, a new denomination called the Free Methodist. And not that it was free will Methodist, but that you could go to church and sit in any seat you wanted to for free. Because the Methodist church had become a church of the respected people, people with money. And if you had money, you got the better seats and you paid for your seats in church. And so the church looked at themselves and said, this is ridiculous. Right? And so they kind of launched a little side movement. The Free Methodist, you get to sit in any seat you want and you don't got to pay. Right, so that Methodist church had kind of lost their way. In the Nazarene church, there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of discussion that maybe we've lost our way to. Maybe we've gone that same route. We were once in the streets helping the poor, and now we're in a beautiful part of town in a beautiful building. It's something that we just need to examine. It's not something that we need to fault ourselves on. It's just something that we need to, along with the Holy Spirit, look at very closely and make sure that we are, from this point forward, moving forward in the right direction. Again, I hope you don't hear me say that this building, this move was a mistake. I do not believe that for a second. Holy Spirit was involved in that whole movement. But again, there's unintended consequences. C.S. Lewis called this the burden of Christianity. What happens when Christianity succeeds and suddenly you're no longer struggling and you're no longer sinning so much? Right? As individuals and as the body of Christ, will you and will we now hoard out of fear of scarcity that's kind of built into our psyche, right? Because we've all experienced it and can't let that happen again. And, and so let's, you know, let's, let's make sure we watch everything super, super, super closely. Or, or instead of hoarding out of the fear of scarcity, we escape and we separate out of fear of evil, again, that's been built into our psyche Right? We need to separate. We need to escape. We need to not let evil touch us. Flee all evil, Timothy. Or Paul wrote to Timothy, flee all evil. Or worse. Worse than hoarding and worse than escaping is when we come to believe that it's all their fault. We look out in the world and we look at the broken. We look at all the isms and we conclude it's got to be their fault. Right? We do the right things and we succeed. They're not succeeding, so they must not be doing the right thing. They must be sinners. And we just... Or even worse than that, having never possibly, having never experienced any of these isms or any of these hardships, we come to the conclusion it's not real. They're, they're not really hurting. That's not really... No. I think those are all wrong moves. Those are horrible moves when we're faced, when we, when we open up our eyes and we look at the situation around us, we can always go in those directions. But that's bearing false witness, just let me tell you. By our inaction, when people need help, we are loudly saying that it's their fault. We don't know that. 
unless you went in and checked out their situation and decided for a fact that it was their fault, by your inaction, you are bearing false witness. You are literally saying, I will not help them because they are a mess and this is all their fault or some of the other reasons we have. So we might just need to lament, and and you didn't expect this, we're supposed to be lamenting our failures, but maybe, maybe the church in the Western world needs to lament success, excess success. Again, I wrestled with it this week, now you all get to wrestle with it, because I don't have an answer for that one. But I do think this is part of what Jesus was pointing out to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. He says this, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Let me point out very quickly, that word holds, you know how you hold something, right? You ever grabbed a, a, a cat or something by the tail? No, you would never do such thing. Let me use another illustration, right? You can grab something by you know, just a piece of it and hold it up, and, but you're only holding a part of it, right? You're only holding a part of it. The Greek word that, that is being used here is that you, our entirety is being held in the hands of Christ, not just our tail, right? He doesn't just have us by the tail, and he doesn't just have us by the throat. He has us, has us entirely in his hands. And then he who walks among the seven golden lampstands, all right? The seven stars are the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches, So he holds the seven churches of which we are a part of. He holds us entirely in our hand, in his hand. And then he walks among the seven golden, he walks among the churches, meaning that he is always present to the churches. He's always right there. He's not somewhere far off. He'd never leave or forsake the church. So this is saying that Christ walks among us. He's always right there, right there. You don't need to make a reservation. You don't need to make a long trip. He's always right there walking amongst us, always present to us. And then verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name, endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Now, now just that's one. I mean, if somebody had wrote to me, and I didn't read the next line. I'm just like, yes, these people were doing church like nobody's business. This is what Jesus was saying. You guys are nailing it. You're doing everything right. You're, you're keeping truly evil, truly evil out. You're keeping false prophets out. You know how to believe. You know how to act. You, you're, man, oh, man, you are, you are just, you're, congratulations, church They're doing everything right. I can't imagine, right? This is how the early Methodists felt, how the early Nazarene church felt. Man, we're nailing it. And yet, verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love that you had at first. Now, there's a lot of debate. Is it the love for each other? Love for Jesus? Love for the lost? I get the impression it's probably all of it. This is each individual must accept that all have sinned, including me and you. We as a collective, we've also got to admit that we've sinned. We would be lying if we said as a collective, as a body, that we haven't fallen short. We're not doing anything wrong. We're nailing it. 
and again, I, I, this, is, this is for the Western church, I think it's a big deal, and, I, and for Richland, that, that's for us to decide. That's for you to wrestle with. Something had gone clearly wrong at Ephesus. The hard work was there, the never say, never attitude was there, the correct belief was there, but the love was gone. It was just cultural. It was, man, this works, right? My kids are behaving in school. This, this just works. My wife doesn't hate me anymore because I'm not a drunken fool anymore. I mean, it just, just works. Who's this Jesus guy? Who do you keep talking about? Jesus. Huh? More than likely, I was kind of thinking about this, it was probably the love for the lost. I was reading an article this week. It said, we churches, in everything that we do to grow, what is actually happening, and this is a person's opinion, what's actually happening is a lot of our activities tend to make us homogenous, tends to make us all the same, so that when we go outside of ourselves and help somebody who's not like one of us, who's a broken mess, it causes tension because we were all the same. We all love each other, and oh, man, that, oh, man, they're going to come in and sit down. Oh, you feel what I'm saying here? We got, we got a little bit of that. So the risen Christ makes his appeal, and it's for three simple steps. How do we get ourselves out of this? If this is where we're at, how do we get ourselves out of this? How does, what does this journey of repentance look like? Revelation chapter 5, first step, consider how far you have fallen. Now listen, this first step is for the church. It's not, he's not saying, hey, sinful people, look how far you've fallen, look what a mess you're in. It's, hey, church people, Look how far you've fallen. And he's speaking to those on the inside who have somehow lost their way. And this memory, remembering, right? Sometimes remembering the past kind of is the impetus that gets us to turn around because we want to recapture that past. So we repent. We, we turn in a different direction. And we go back and chase after that thing in the past that worked. Memory is very helpful. First step on the way back. And so not only do we need to lament, repent, maybe excess successes, but there's also the more obvious. We need to lament and repent our, our failures too. Consider how far you've fallen. Second step is repent. Now, we've got to discover something. When we find that something's gone wrong, there's more than one possible response. I think you all know this, right? We may feel there's no way that we can sustain this effort, and so we just accept the inevitable, <laughs> This is the way it's going to be. The world's a mess, and I'm just going to hopefully skate through and not make it worse, all right? Or we may be filled with resentment, and we're going to blame life, and we're going to blame them, and this is all their fault, and, and this is none of my fault, and we won't take a good hard look at ourselves. We won't look in the mirror, and we'll just remain blind. Or, or we can just lose hope. We can quit trying. We can decide this whole Christian thing is a waste of time. People don't change. And so in order to find the joy of life, we decide, ah, well, God doesn't it's not give me any joy, so I guess I'll just go, I'll go to the world and see if I can get some joy out of it. And so we can always make any one of these three choices. Once we look at our life, we decide something's gone wrong. I can't do anything about it, get angry, or just lose hope and give up on the whole thing. But the risen Christ says, repent. He says, repent. But <laughs> there's one little issue, one little problem, one little barrier in moving from the lament to the, the decision to repent. One little thing. We talked about this several weeks ago. Metanoia. 
That is the Greek word for repent. And it basically means, we talked about this again a couple weeks ago, where somebody, they have a way of life, they have a perspective, and something happens. And, and, and maybe you don't know, maybe you do know what happened, but suddenly they are from day one to day two, they are a different person. They don't talk the same way. They don't act the same way. They don't think the same way. They don't do anything. They are a changed person. That's metanoia, right? Something happened. Either they remembered something or something tragic happened or I don't know what it was, but they like, bam, turn around and go the opposite direction because that direction is death. I got to find life. And it's just it's metanoia, metanoia. But there's this other word, metamelamoi. I pronounced it. Metamelomai. Metamelomai. Yeah, close enough. This is the word. Hit that next slide there. This is where we tend to stop, right? We tend to stop. It's a change of mind producing regret or even remorse on the account of sin, but not necessarily a change of heart. I know everything I'm supposed to be doing about my health. I know all of it, and I feel remorse that I'm not doing it. I do. I feel regret that I'm not as healthy as I could be. But Diane will tell you, I don't get on that bike very often. I have not yet had, you'd think a heart surgery would do it. And I kind of did for a little while, but <laughs> then not. Metamelomai. Change of the mind, but not necessarily the change of the heart. So how do we move from that it's metanoia, change of heart, purpose, and life. Not just mind, but purpose and life to which remission of sin is promised. How do we get from, okay, I, I know it up here, but I don't feel it down here. How, how, do, you, how do you get from here, from here to here? See, the hardest thing about repentance is the acceptance of the personal responsibility for your failure. But once the responsibility is accepted, godly sorrow sets in. Let me explain just a little bit. Godly sorrow is when you realize what you did hurt somebody, and their pain hurts more than your pain, right? Worldly sorrow and shame, your pain is more than their pain. I got to do something because I look bad. That's a worldly shame. But a godly sorrow, you, 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 you reach that point where you realize, I caused that pain, and now it's causing me pain. I'm having stomach issues. I can't think. I'm constipated. I, you know, what, I got too much information, right? You just get to that point where I got to do something. That's metanoia. That's metanoia. Godly sorrow leads us to race to repentance, Right? Because we want to get rid of that pain that we know we've caused. And the only way that we can get it is if we make things right. Again, so how do you get to that godly sorrow? Well, Jesus said, third step, pretty simple, sounds like do the things you once did. Do the things you once did. Consider how far you've fallen, repent, and do the things that you once did at first. The sorrow of repentance is meant to drive us to two things. Number one, it's meant to drive us to our knees, right? But by the grace of God, that's not me. So that humbles us right away because the other, the other place to start is, wow, what a mess. I'm glad I'm not them. They must have made one bad decision after another that I never made because I am so much better than them. So the first step in the repentance, the sorrow of repentance, godly sorrow, it drives us to fling ourselves on the grace of God. But the second thing it's meant to do is drive us to action, drive us to do something. I got to do something, and I cannot rest until their pain is lessened, and I'm the one that caused it. 
I'm the one that caused it, and it is killing me. Remember, the final stage of God's sanctification process is what? He puts us together in this building and then says, go out and save the rest of the world, right? That's the end, the last step of our sanctification process. If we skip that, skip that last step, we get the yips. You all know what the yips are, right? Any of you guys are athletes. It's when you stop at some point and you don't follow through, and at some point you have a hesitation. You don't follow through. You don't do that last step, and then everything else just goes to poo. I shouldn't say that word in church either. But you get the yips. Our final step, we've got to take that final step or we're going to be making a mess of everything. Our final step is to get outside that building, get outside these walls, give people the message of hope. That's the final step in God's sanctification process, to go out and find lost sheep. This is what Jesus said. Basically, look, go out and find lost sheep. Throughout Scripture, we got this theme of going out. Right in Genesis, the Spirit of the Lord went out, hovered over the, the chaos and the darkness. The ancient Hebrews were supposed to go out and populate the earth. They blew it. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. Jesus did. He, was, he went out from heaven, right? Was sent out from his heavenly home. The Israelites, they were supposed to go out with a, a holy message of love. They failed too. So Jesus gives us our marching orders. It's to go out. It's not to come to church. It's to go out. You come to church to get energized, to fill up the tank, to get filled with the Holy Spirit. But the final step, the final step is to go out. This is how we move from metamelamai, right, the knowledge of pain and suffering in our heads to a collective metanoia, right, feeling the pain, sorrow of the other person in our hearts. So let's jump back to our lament in Luke 15, where sinners love Jesus and Jesus loves sinners. Chapter, verses 3 and 4 says this, Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you had 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And I love this. Even one lost and wandering soul moves God's heart. And I think he's saying it should move our heart too. Even, even one. Even one. Verses 5 and 6. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Let me point out very quickly, there's rejoicing in both groups. Right? It states very clearly that the 99 were righteous. They were not self-righteous. They weren't sinners. They, you know, there's a lot of ways that I can, we can tackle this passage. That was the, the Israelites. Wherever we want to land on that one, the fact of the matter is both groups experience God's salvation. But Luke does seem to be saying that God pays super close attention to the lost and to those who go out and find them. Right? He, man, he loves that. He loves all of us, but he loves watching us go out and find his lost children. Someone needs to draw someone's attention. We talked about this last week, a couple weeks ago. Someone needs to draw everyone's attention to the injustices all around that either shouldn't be or shouldn't be allowed to be. Someone needs to provide a safe space to vent anger and dismay at the destructive power of sin. I don't know if you're catching it, but we're, we're that someone. We're that, we were that someone. Someone needs to give voice to the confusion and the suffering and provide the space to ask the tough questions about God's character and about God's promises and know that it's okay 
that this is a safe place to explore those questions, that you will not be told what you're supposed to believe, what you're supposed to do. Someone needs to stand up for those who can't. That's kind of our collective job, task. So I want to close with a passage that we read a couple weeks ago. It's Psalm 139. I've changed some words. I'm just going to make this and change it from a personal to a a collective. Um, Let me read this. And if you would read along, you can read along out loud. You can read along in your head, however way you feel moved. Search us, God, and know our heart. Test us and know our ancient, anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in us and lead us in the way of everlasting. Again, this examination, this hard look at ourselves, this isn't something to be defensive about. This isn't something to fear, right? You want to know if something's wrong that's going to hurt you on down the line or that's going to stop you from doing what you want to do on down the line. This is stuff we want to know. Being confronted with our sin, it's a mercy. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's a mercy. It's not a cause for defensiveness. See, God's setting us free, but we've got to be honest. Remember the key to the lament, the first step, in the face of whatever it is that we're facing, and we have this decision to make. Will we talk to God about it? Or will we decide, nah, we don't need to bring him in on it. It's not that big a deal. Again, this is something we all have to wrestle with. Bow your heads. Father, tough message to preach from Revelation to a church that's not doing what they should be doing. And Father, I don't know where Richland Church of the Nazarene stands. I know you love us. I know that we could do worse. I know we could do better. Father, give us courage to look at ourselves honestly and to begin grace-filled conversations with each other. What might we need to lean into a little bit more to turn a corner? Heavenly Father, I I don't know. All this week, I I struggled where this church particularly, this, this local body stands, and I just... I feel like I kept getting the impression that's not my worry. I just need to be faithful. You are doing things in the hearts and minds of these people here in front of me, Father. I know that. Just as you're doing something in my life. But Father, more than anything, help us, give us courage to do something about it. Not just to know that it's there, but to take that painful big first step admitting that we're at fault, pointing the finger at ourselves and deciding what are we going to do next? Father, are we going to turn to you or are we just just going to hope it works out? Father, help us to choose wisely. Help us to choose life. In your son's name I pray.